0: Welcome to Heard About, the podcast about the biggest moments in communications with the people who are behind them. I'm your host, Winston Chang. You know, distrust in the media is nothing new, but it's been particularly bad lately. Gallup has done a survey on the issue every year since 1972, and in 2020, six out of ten Americans said they don't trust the media. Which Makes me wonder if 6 out of 10 people saw that today's episode features not one, but two reporters and automatically wrote it off. But I hope not, because throughout my conversation with today's guests, what stood out to me wasn't the kind of story they wrote, even though that story is one of the most impactful ones written in recent years. No, what stood out to me was the kind of people they are, compassionate toward the hurting and ferocious about finding the truth. Remarkably intelligent and tirelessly hardworking. And yeah, they're journalists. And you know, I'm thankful that they are. We need more like them. We've all heard the name Dr. Larry Nasser. We've heard about what he did during his decades at Michigan State University and with the USA Gymnastics team. How he sexually abused countless girls and young women who were sent to him for medical treatment. We've heard from Olympic gold medal gymnasts, former Michigan State athletes, and even the daughter of family friends. Hundreds of people in total who have come forward as his victims. But how did we hear about Larry Nassar? What uncovered a truth that had been hidden for decades? What gave so many women the platform and courage to speak? What brought this once prominent doctor to justice and put him in prison for the rest of his life? More precisely, who?
1: My name is Marissa Kwiatkowski. I'm an investigative reporter for USA Today previously an investigative reporter for the Indianapolis Star, and I am currently based in Indianapolis.
2: I'm Tim Evans, I'm an investigative reporter at IndyStar.com. I'm coming to you from Brownsburg, Indiana, which is a suburb of
0: Indianapolis. In 2016, Marissa and Tim were part of a small team of investigative journalists at the Indianapolis Star, examining failures in the USA Gymnastics organization to properly deal with sexual abuse allegations. Their investigation went all the way to the top.
2: I once told Marissa during this project, I came in one morning and I said, I wonder if Steve Penny lays in bed at night wondering about me. He was the former head of USA Gymnastics, you know, because I'm I'm laying
0: in bed at night wondering about him. And the investigation took them on a journey even they couldn't have imagined.
1: Looking back at it now, years later, I'm incredibly proud of the work we've done. Um, so much of that credit goes to the survivors who shared their stories. It would not have happened without them.
0: Today, we have the privilege of talking to Marissa Kwiatkowski and Tim Evans, two members of the Indianapolis Star Team that broke the USA Gymnastics sexual abuse and Larry Nasser's stories. <laughs> We'll talk with Marissa and Tim about how they got their start in investigative reporting, opening the investigation into USA Gymnastics in 2016, and Tim's interview with Nassar himself. Tim remains the only person in the world who's interviewed Nassar about the allegations. Then we'll discuss what it was like interviewing the victims for their story and the story's widespread impact, plus what the most gratifying part of it all was. So. Let's begin. Good morning, Mercer and Tim. Thanks so much for, for joining us on today's podcast.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. Why don't you tell us how you both got your start in investigative reporting?
2: I'm a lot older than Marissa. And, you know, I was probably touched by investigative reporting with Watergate and that kind of uh, stuff in, in the 70s. Um, I've been in journalism since the late 70s. I've uh, been a reporter and editor in a lot of different positions and my really first investigative, real and serious investigative work was at the Indianapolis Star starting in about 2000 and it's uh, started in children's issues, child abuse, child welfare situations and um, that kind of is how Marissa and I crossed paths. Um, she she kind of came into that field too and we worked as competitors for a while and then I helped recruit her to come and uh, work at the Star and which didn't take much effort to get the editors on her. It took a little while to get her to come and be with us. But, um, so I've been doing it for about 20 years.
1: I have never wanted to do anything but journalism, uh, sort of single-minded in following that path. I had my first internship when I was 15. I went to school for journalism, uh, had my first full-time job before I graduated college, and I didn't really get into investigative reporting until I came to the Times of Northwest Indiana. I had a really amazing editor there who was really supportive of that kind of work, and like Tim, I started doing a lot of work relating to children's issues and social services, and then Tim conned me into coming to the Indianapolis Star.
0: Why investigative reporting of all of the the beats of all of the kinds of reporting you could do?
1: Um, I think for me, it's the ability to expose wrongdoing and potentially make a difference, right? You know, the hope that we are showing something that's wrong and maybe someone will fix what isn't working the way that it should be.
2: And I think, you know, the opportunity to be a voice for the voiceless and to hold power to account, you know, those kind of things are uh, kind of cliched, but it's it's uh, what drives us. I think what drives us all to do this thing, this kind of work.
0: So I'd love to talk about the the story that you're both really well known for working on along with... Uh, your editor, Steve Berta, and another reporter at the Indy Star at the time, uh, Mark Alicia, and then a photojournalist, Robert Shear. I'd like to rewind back to, to 2016. Uh, so Marissa, why don't you start us off? Tell us about the story that you were working on um, at the beginning of that year in March.
1: I had been working on an investigation relating to failures to report child sexual abuse in schools. We'd had a number of cases in Indiana in which a school official was accused of having an inappropriate relationship with an underage student. Other school officials found out about it and didn't report it to authorities right away as required by law. And as I was working on a bigger piece looking at why does this keep happening when a source reached out and suggested I look at USA Gymnastics and how they handled such allegations and that source pointed me toward a lawsuit in Georgia and records that he said might soon be sealed by the judge. And that's really what started us on the path of our investigation.
0: Is there anything you can tell us about this source?
1: I I can now. I couldn't at the time. Um, the person who originally put this on my radar um, was an attorney named John Little, and uh, an attorney named Jessica Wegg, and the two of them were the ones who really brought this to my attention and pointed us in the direction of our investigation. Um, You know, of course, as journalists, we don't like, um, you know, we're very careful with our sources. Um, And the only reason that I can give you his name now is because, you know, we're talking about four years ago, and he's given us permission to share who he is.
0: So why do you think people hadn't looked at this before? Not just the the Georgia case, but, you know, the uh, obviously the largest story that it was part of that it turned out to be,
2: you know, there are a lot uh, people have written about abuse in gymnastics and in, in youth sports, you know, off and on for, for years. It's, we weren't the first people to write about it. Certainly. I think what made our investigation different was instead of focusing on one coach or a couple of bad coaches, we were going for a systemic issue, the, the policy and practices of a national governing body that allowed this to happen. So that was kind of what distinguished us, what made our investigation different. This wasn't just a one bad coach. This was a policy that was allowing this abuse to continue
0: and abusers to escape uh, scrutiny.
1: Yeah, it was never just about Nassar.
0: Yeah. So Marissa, you mentioned that that's when you got Mark and and Tim involved. You brought them into the story. So what does that look like? You, You fly back with, I've read a thousand pages of court records. You come back from Georgia, you get back to Indianapolis and you just call them and say, hey, look, this is a big thing. I need help on the story. Walk us through that.
1: So I picked up, like you said, almost a thousand pages in Georgia and read through them pretty quickly to kind of get an understanding of what was there. And it quickly became clear, as Tim said, that we knew what their policy was. They had a policy of not reporting all allegations to authorities unless the complaint had been signed by a victim, of victim's parent, or an eyewitness to the abuse. And we knew what that policy was. Step two was what is the impact of that policy on the safety of kids in the sport? And it was especially to do quickly too much for one person. And so Mark and Tim quickly joined the investigation and were the three of us, we were pursuing different avenues, sort of getting at, again, what is that impact? You know, and Tim, particularly in the beginning, and he can talk about this better than I can, but was really focused on what did the law require them to do? And we were sort of feeding the piece of what were they actually doing?
2: And I'd say the, I have a little different view of the, the start of the investigation. We had Previously, at the end of 2015, realigned how we did investigations, and it was kind of much more. Instead of a team pro- project, we were individual kind of lone wolf investigators on subject matter. And so, when Marissa, you know, I got a whiff that she was on a big story, and they sent her to Georgia overnight. And you know, then they're back before they brought Mark and myself into it in the conference room where the you know all the magic happens. And you know, I'm walking outside the, the glass window, you know, looking in jealous, uh, you know, my feelings hurt that I'm not involved in this. There's something big. I don't know what it is. And, you know, I want, I should be a part of this. And um, a few days later they said, you know, Hey Tim, we need you to come in, come in and jump on this. And I'd been doing investigations kind of in the legal and, and uh, that area for a little while. So um, I, I had to overcome a little hurt feelings and jealousy, nothing to do with Marissa or Mark. It was just uh you know there was a big story and I was used to being part of that and, and here suddenly I wasn't uh, and um, but quickly dragged in and probably regret it now <laughs> in some ways you know the next three or four years of my life were tied up in gymnastics and gymnastics abuse. My bad. By August 4th
0: 2016 the team had compiled enough evidence, including those 1,000 pages that Marissa picked up in Georgia, to publish the first article in their series, a breakthrough piece entitled, A Blind Eye to Sex Abuse, How USA Gymnastics Failed to Report Cases. You can still check it out on the IndyStar website. And in that article, they named multiple coaches who had faced allegations of sexual abuse that the organization just filed away and never really dealt with. Now, the piece didn't name Larry Nasser, But after it came out...
2: You know, we set up a a voicemail box and an email box, uh, and it was flooded. And, you know, Rachel's came in that first day, but I don't think we got back to her for a week or so. We were so overwhelmed by other people, and it was, you know everybody just saw this opportunity to to tell their story, and it was from California to Boston to Florida. I mean, we heard from across the country. That's how we came to Rachel and um, Jane Doe.
0: That's Rachel Den Hollander and another woman who had asked to remain anonymous, both of them former gymnasts. Now, they'd both read the August 4th article, and they wanted to talk to the reporters who'd written it. And they gave the team one name in particular, Larry Nasser. Tim is the only person who's ever gotten to interview Nasser about these allegations. So here's his account.
2: Well, again, we'd, we'd had, you know, after the tip from Rachel, we had two others, uh, former gymnasts, who came forward with allegations about Nasser. And, um, you know, it was kind of like the start of the project. Uh, I, I drew the short straw. Again, I was kind of the outside looking in. Marissa was going to California to, to talk to um, uh, uh, Jane Doe at that time. Um, Mark had gone to um, Louisville to talk to Rachel, Den Hollander. I just had a heart attack a few months earlier, and I wasn't really into flying if I could avoid it. So my job was kind of um, you know, the throwaway, reach out to NASA, get the no comment, you know, and, and we'll go from there. So I called the medical clinic where he worked, and the people were really squirrely. Um, and said, "Well, he's not here. He's and I don't know when he'll be back, kind of thing." So I had an email for him at his medical clinic, and I also had a home email that I'd found for him. So I sent emails out. I think it was on a Wednesday night. You know, Dr. Nasser, um, and this is a lesson I'll get to in a minute. But you know, we've had some uh, troubling allegations about you, and we'd really like to hear your side of the story. And you know, I was expecting no comment or talk to my attorney. The next morning, I came in and I have two emails in my inbox from Nasser. One says he's. He's, you know, disheartened that people would misinterpret his, his intentions to help them. And he'd like to meet me as soon as possible. Could I come to his home in in Lansing? And then, um, by the time I got there, the second one had arrived and he said, I spoke to my wife and she thinks it'd be better that I met with, met you with my attorney. Hmm. So, um, we reached back out, got his attorney's contact and, you know, offered to go that day, the next day. And finally we ended up going there on Monday, which I think was September 13th. And, um, the same time we knew that a lawsuit was coming in california so i get up about five in the morning here in indianapolis and drive to uh, grand rapids to meet him at his attorney's office and um you know again he would he wanted to show me first some of his videos and wanted to talk a little bit off the record so i had a better understanding of what he was doing so i let him do that he showed me some videos of him you know um massaging the back and the buttocks and the upper thighs of some young girls and you know he he kind of explained you you could see why you know these girls might misinterpret what I'm doing but you know his procedure was to release a nerve that was in their pelvic area and so you know he he told me that and then he started to show me some articles um that um he'd been written up in in medical magazines and those kind of things and um, about that time, I got a text, I think it was from Marissa or Mark, that the lawsuit in California had been filed, and we obtain a copy of it. So I stopped the interview, what we were doing, and, and told an Nasser's attorney that, hey, you know, we just started a lawsuit has been filed. And, you know, people have asked me, did I have to do that? Should I have done that? You know, in some ways, I kind of regret doing it because it it stopped the interview for all intents and purposes. But also, I don't think it would have been fair for them me to know that, that the lawsuit had been filed against him and, you know, getting him to, to talk or say things that he was now, you know, facing an additional threat. So I told him, we emailed a copy, or Marissa emailed a copy of the lawsuit up and Nassar's attorney went in the conference room and read the lawsuit came back out. And, you know, they kind of begged me to tell him who it was. They thought they knew who it was. And then, um, you know, his attorney made a very, quick Tersh statement that he denied doing it, um, doing anything illegal. And then, you know, as I was kind of leaving, Nasser was pleading with us not to do a story, you know, please wait. This is going to ruin my reputation. You know, I've got a family. This is going to hurt my family. And, you know, it was, a he had a hard sell at the end, you know, to, to try to, you know, not do something. And I left the attorney's office and drove a couple blocks and pulled into a parking lot in an office building and, you know, kind of composed myself and debriefed and then called in to Marissa and the team on it and told them what he said. And we published our first story later that day.
0: That day was September 12th, 2016, the day the team broke the Larry Nasser story. The article, which again, you can find on the Star website, carried the headline, Former USA Gymnastics Doctor accused of abuse. Quoting Rachel and Jane, it detailed the allegations against Nasser, and again, USA Gymnastics failure to properly handle the case. So back to Tim on what his impressions of Nasser were from that interview and then what happened afterward.
2: It was, it was an interesting experience. He was, he was very, um, he's kind of a quirky guy. He was very, um, positive and strong in his comments when he was leading the uh the discussion you know when he was showing me what he was doing he was very confident Uh, at one point I asked him why aren't you wearing gloves and you know his his eyes bat and he kind of has a little bit of a tick in his face and and he said well I just I I need to be able to 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 feel you know and the gloves impede that and you know that was one of the first things that I had done was find out you know, is, is this a legitimate medical procedure he was doing and if so what what's what's the standard of practice you know what what would what would you do and and everyone that I talked to said you'd wear gloves you'd have an adult in the room you know you would tell the person okay now I'm going to do this and none of those things were things that, that he did and, and um, so it was an interesting experience I did have one letter from him or two letters from him since he went to prison I wrote him a couple of times you know asking to interview and have not uh, heard back from the latest request, and I'm not sure that he'll ever talk again. But, you know, I kind of left him at, at, at the point we left that interview was, you know, I'd still like to talk to you someday and, you know, hear your side of the story and still waiting.
1: Well, and the most important piece of that interview came from the attorney who said that Nasser had never used penetration in the course of a medical treatment. And that ended up being a hugely significant comment because there were a lot of women who read that statement and knew that that was not true. And some of those women had not realized what had happened to them was abuse until they saw that statement.
2: We always worried and our editors worried that this was going to get into court and it was going to be a he said, she said, and it was going to be a complicated and convoluted by medical experts. It was, you know, and it would become a debate of medical experts. Um, but when Nasser's attorney made that denial, that took that defense away basically. And, you know, all these women across the country called bullshit on that statement and they started coming forward. And, and you know, had, had he not said that, you know, I just, I think there's a chance that Nasser may have, uh, you know, gotten off because again, it, it would have it was one of those cases, you know, where it would have gone into just minutia of medical practice, and you know, there's a great deference in America to doctors and, and their procedures. So, you know, that that was a critical component of it.
1: That and the child pornography.
2: Yeah, that that sealed his fate.
0: Leading up to that August 4th article, and especially afterward, with that email inbox and voicemail getting flooded, as Tim put it, the team conducted a lot of interviews with victims and survivors. I wanted to know what that was like. How'd you get sources to talk, and um, especially about such personally traumatic, difficult subjects to complete strangers, really, Uh, these these reporters uh, they'd never met before?
1: I think taking a step back, you know, the voices of the people who shared their stories in that first piece that we did, the blind eye to sex abuse, really set the stage for the people who spoke with us after that. And we saw this throughout the investigation that the power of one voice would lead to other people feeling more comfortable sharing theirs. And we were very clear with them about why we were doing this investigation and that we didn't want them to recount abuse just to recount abuse that we wanted the public to understand why this policy that USA Gymnastics had mattered and affected the people who were involved in the sport. And so I think for me, people who are reaching out to us after that first article already kind of knew what we were doing, but there was you know, so much trust from the very beginning with the people that we were speaking with even before publication of that first article.
2: And that was a really hard nut to crack because USA Gymnastics has so much power and so much control. And, you know, lots of people were talking to us off the record. This is terrible. This is going on. But so many were afraid to put their name to it. And we got about three or four people who stood up. And, you know, in some ways, those are the people that are, are kind of unsung heroes because without their voices, we may not have reached that August 4th article or we may not have had the same impact. And, you know, they, they came forward, uh, they weren't necessarily Nasser victims, uh, they, they weren't NASA victims, but they, you know, cracked the door, they trusted us, I think people saw that we handled and, and I think some of the people we talked to down the road had conversations with those people. They realized that we could be trusted that we were going to handle things, you know, as delicately as possible. Um, but we couldn't, you know, we couldn't just ignore some of the facts we, we, we wanted to make it clear that these weren't issues of, you know, somebody patting a girl on the butt or his hand slip when he's trying to catch her or she's coming off the bars and touch her breast. This was sexual abuse. And so, you know, th- there was, that was a balancing line we had to walk there because we wanted to make it clear that this was, was something beyond an innocent, you know, uh, mistake. And that was that first group, you know, there's still some of my uh, the people I respect the most out of this whole project because they came forward when it wasn't easy, and it got, and it's never easy, but it got easier as, as the snowball started rolling downhill. So I'm forever thankful to those those early people and.
0: I'm, I'm sure they, you know, have courses in journalism school about how to talk to sources, uh, how to make them feel comfortable, that kind of thing. But a lot of th- this seems to be about like just humanity, too, right? And and um, and being a person with another person and, and empathizing. I guess the the simplest way of asking the question is, how did you learn to do that? To to be prepared for this moment when you when you had to talk to sources in that way um, and get that kind of information from them.
1: Well, I can't speak for all of us, but. I- I'll tell you that I never had a class in talking to sources. Um, You know, I think it's something Tim and I in particular had done a lot relating to social services and child welfare. And so we had a lot of experience going into this investigation in having really sensitive interviews. And I think more than anything, it's just about treating people with respect and over communicating because a lot of the fear in interviews comes from the unknown not knowing who this person is that's asking you questions, how it's going to be used. And so we really at the front end tried to over-communicate about not only who we are and what we're doing, but how their experiences and their stories fit into the bigger picture of what we're working on and why it matters.
2: And I think, you know, we all took approach and I think it's some to do with our individual character, but, you know, that one person wasn't... You know, while they might have been important, so they weren't going to make it or break it. And if one person told us something that we would love to have published, and we had lots of people like that, but they weren't comfortable, you know, we were willing to set that aside. And you know, in some ways that helped us because it, it built our knowledge base that this these weren't maybe um, unique events or they weren't limited. Even though we couldn't report on those others, it helped us understand we were on the right track that, that there was a systemic problem. But I think we always took the approach that. We, didn't, we weren't going to burn somebody or do something that was, was going to hurt some one of the sources we talked to just for a good story. I mean, we're, we were all in it for the long haul. You know, I've been doing this for a long time, 40 years, 40-some 40 years, and it's just not worth it. You know, to, the, the, the one thing we have going for us uh, is our reputations, and, you, you know, you don't want to burn sources. And so, again, there were lots of good things that we knew we would love to have included in a story. But um, we, we passed because the, the source just wasn't ready to come forward at that time.
0: If you wanted to write about all of them, you know, you could fill the newspaper for for weeks, right, front to back end. So, so what are the the factors that you consider to 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 think about which ones do we pursue first and which ones rise to the top?
2: I think for us, we were looking for things that kind of fit in the theme and the line that we were working on already. We were looking for things that were new uh, that weren't reported. We had uh, claims going back into the nineties. Um, you know, we looked at at people. Um, had they been written about? You know, to some degree, how credible the sources were. You know, what was their experience? You know, that's one of the, my greatest regrets of this project and many other projects. There were so many stories, and and, and you know that, that I wish we could have told. And there there are some just stories that would knock your socks off that make you cry um, that we never got around to because of They didn't kind of fit in in the direction we were moving at that time. And, and, you know, and again, I I still have contact with one of the one of the women. And it's, you know, one of my greatest regrets is that we never got to tell her story because it was so important and and that she opened up so much to me. And, And you alluded to this earlier, but it was amazing how quickly people would open up to us and tell us the worst things that happened to them in their lives Again, we're basically strangers. Most of this was, you know, off and over the telephone or at least initially. I think it shows the depth of the pain that they were going through and the depth of the struggle and, and, and the hope that they put in us. And you know, that, that was one of the things that kind of kept us going forward is, you know, they were they were a lot of these survivors were putting their trust and their hopes in us
1: mm-hmm.
2: as their last hope. And Rachel kind of made that statement. That that we could get we could get it out and we maybe we could make a difference maybe we could finally be a, a, a voice that you know cut through the, all the noise, and you know that that's a heavy burden and, and but it also um, was something that kept us going and kept us honest and you know kept us focused
0: because the team kept going. In the end, more than 500 women and girls came forward to tell their story. Administrators at Michigan State and the entire USA Gymnastics Board, including President Steve Penny, resigned. In 2016, the team won the AP Sports Editor's Award in investigative reporting. In 2017, the federal government passed legislation requiring organizations to promptly report allegations of sexual abuse to law enforcement. And of course, Nassar was arrested charged, and in 2018, sentenced.
1: Sir, I'm giving you 175 years, which is 2,100 months. (laughs) I've just signed your death warrant.
0: And so, to wrap up our conversation, we talked about victory personally, what was the validating moment or the most significant result of the investigative reporting that you um, that you did?
1: That's a really difficult question because I think for so much of the time we were doing the investigation, we weren't thinking about impact or thinking about what it meant. It was very much about what is the next thing that we need to do as part of it. Um, I think looking back at it now, years later, I'm incredibly proud of the work we've done. Um, So much of that credit goes to the survivors who shared their stories. Um, It would not have happened without them. But I think the change in federal law is something I'm particularly proud of because that now requires all national governing bodies, not just USA Gymnastics. To immediately report all allegations of child sexual abuse to authorities, and that is regardless of what state they're in, uh, regardless of what organization they are with.
2: I think there were two key points, probably for me, and again, a lot of this was happening. When we were on a, on another subject, you know, way ahead by the time you know you get recognition or award or whatever, you know. So, um, but the listening to the women share their stories at the sensing of Nasser was just, you know, an overwhelming thing, uh, you know, and, and you, we knew a lot of their stories. We knew many of the stories, but to hear just, you know, from their own telling of them, it was just overwhelming. And to see that we had had some small role in opening that floodgate and, you know, starting the healing for a hundred and some women that came through and told these horror stories. And that was really, you know, a touchstone moment for me and then probably the the other one was I think in 2018 I went to a congressional hearing um, it was the one where Steve Penny walked out and they were by that time the documentary crew was following us and there were probably 20 some survivors there for the congressional hearing and I'd met maybe two or three of them in person I'd talked to probably four or five of them on the phone and after that hearing you know all these women line up to hug me and shake my hand and you know call me a hero and it was um as you can tell it's pretty overwhelming but you know I just told them you know I, I'm not the hero i'm'm I'm, I'm just a reporter you know they're the heroes that, that came forward and 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 made the stuff but I mean you know that that's when you you saw how much we'd impacted the lives of people that we didn't even know and and um, you know the, the strangers who had put their trust in us we hadn't let them down and so, you know, that, that was a moment that I'll never forget. And, and, you know, probably one of the most emotional moments of my life. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, and you, you mentioned a documentary, Tim, that's the the Netflix documentary, right? Uh, yes. Athlete Affle- a, a, the yeah. award-winning Netflix documentary, Athlete A. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, what was it like going through that? For me, it was like a year in the dentist chair. <laughs> you know, painful. I, um, I have a, Face for newspaper, obviously, and a uh, voice for print. Uh, so I was out of my element and, and uncomfortable every moment the camera was looking at me. And um, but you know it was in, it was intriguing. Um, they they were it was a very good crew to work with. They were very supportive of us, and and I think they did a pretty honest retelling of what was going on. Um, but again, it was just something that was so far from my nature, you know, I'd much rather be in the background and people know me by my name on my story and not by anything else. So, you know, that, that was an interesting experience to say the least.
1: Okay, let me just say Tim's full of crap. He is the best of us. I mean, you can tell from this conversation that he is by far the best at, you know, sharing our story and helping people understand the work we've done. I would say for me, um, it was a challenge, particularly in the beginning, because we're used to just kind of doing the work, and it does add another layer when you know that it's being recorded, and we do a lot of work with confidential sources, and navigating through those dynamics was particularly challenging. I will also say it gave me a whole new appreciation for the trust that people place in us, because we were on the other side of that for the documentary and the filmmakers, we had to trust them to honor the integrity of the work that we were doing to honor the confidentiality that we were granting our sources to honor the full process of the work that we do. And I feel like they did an amazing job with athlete a, Um, but it, it was definitely in the beginning nerve wracking to have these incredibly intense detailed sensitive conversations with a camera like right here
0: <laughs> so now Marissa you're at USA today uh, you've moved on from the indie star Tim you're still uh, at the the indie star but you're the the only one of the this original team that's uh, still there were you and Robert uh, but uh, Steve has exited the industry mark has moved on as well so but it but it seems like you all keep in touch. Is this one of those things that kind of binds you together for, for the rest of your life?
1: Uh, yes. Tim is my big brother. Also, I just want to point out that he is an Indiana Journalism Hall of Fame inductee. So he is still doing incredible work. And I would encourage you guys to look at IndyStar.com and see the work he's still doing. It's incredible. But, you know, what we went through was an incredible challenging at moments experience. But um, you know, I'm glad that we could do it together.
2: And it, it was intense at times. We were working, you know, sixty, seventy hours a week at, at times, and we were in this little fifteen by fifteen conference room and we're all uh, people with strong opinions and strong personalities to, to degree. And it was kind of like a family at times there were squabbles and uh, you know, we were close to each other's throats. Um, but it also, you know, made us a lot closer, I think in the long haul and, you know, particularly with Marissa while I'd worked around her and, and was familiar with her work and, you know, wanted her to come work with us. We hadn't really worked on projects together. I don't think anything before that in a long-term kind of situation. And that was just such a pleasure. She is, a, you know, fantastic, organized, um, I'm old and sloppy and believe in paper and and my desk looks like you would think an old time journalist would, you know, she had everything organized by by boxes and then she had the Google Docs or the, you know, the shared docs. And so it was a, it was an interesting learning experience, but it was, and you know, it was just really intense and we we became family working through it.
0: was Marissa Kwiatkowski and Tim Evans, two members of the Indianapolis Star investigative team that broke the USA Gymnastics and Larry Nassar story in 2016. If you enjoyed getting the story behind the story today, please consider doing two things. First, share this podcast with someone you think might enjoy it. And second, Tim?
2: Uh, Subscribe to your local newspaper.
0: Thanks for joining us. This has been your host, Winston Chang. Until next time.